Hey everyone, welcome to episode 27 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. As always, we want to thank you, our listeners, for all of your amazing reviews on iTunes. We are absolutely floored by all of your kind words, and we really want to be your best friends too. Yes, we do. Also, thanks for all the support on Instagram and Twitter. It's so highly appreciated. We really can never thank you guys enough for all the feedback that you give us. If you would like to follow us on social media platforms, you can at True Crime Couple. We want to thank all of our sponsors at the beginning of the show. So we want to give a thank you to Care.com and all of our amazing Patreon supporters. We love and appreciate all that you do for us. Just before we record this episode, we recorded one for our Patreons, so that episode will be up before this one on all traditional podcast platforms. And what we did on that episode is we kind of just discussed how I got into true crime with um, my father uh, finding a dead body and kind of how we have our ghost stories of our own, which are pretty interesting. And so that episode's up on Patreon right now. And if you're interested in contributing to our podcast to make it better for you, our listeners, you can do so at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And also, uh, in the future, if you ever want us to uh, cover something on Patreon that you might be interested in listening to, um, just give us a shout out, let us know, and we can you know, try to make that happen for you guys. Definitely. Whatever our Patreon listeners want, they're definitely going to get. So right now, we want to begin episode 27. teacher of teenagers, I guess you could say that it takes a lot to rattle me. I've seen and heard some things that you can't imagine, and I've only been teaching for five years. However, nothing can top that email. The one that causes even the most battle-worn among us to stop and take a somber walk down to the main office. The email that lets us know that a sex offender has moved into the area in which we teach the area in which kids that we invest our money, time, hearts, and souls will roam and play. When I get there, I look through the packet prepared by the secretary. We are shown the face of the offender, we are told where he lives and what car he drives, and just what landed him on the clipboard that I'm holding in my hands. I then have to sign a paper informing the state of New Jersey that I saw the picture, read the file, and know that I am responsible for contacting law enforcement if I see this individual anywhere near school property. That man or woman is a sex offender, now a part of a registry which restricts him from living within a certain distance from schools and playgrounds. A community now needs to be made aware if they move into town. This notification always meeting a resounding outcry of community members who do not want this monster placed among those that they love. In our society, we have deemed the child sex offender to be the worst creature that exists among us. The ones that commit the ultimate evil against are inherently innocent. However, it is not until 1994 that the communities in which these individuals choose to live were made aware that they were sharing the same town, division, block, or two-family house with someone who may want to harm those that they were sworn to protect. The Child Sex Offender Registry in the United States is very controversial, but it has undeniably saved the lives of many children throughout the decades that it has been established. The registry was created as a result of two American tragedies, that of Jacob Wetterling and Megan Kanka. Throughout the years, there have been many wonderful, in-depth podcasts either dedicating one episode or an entire season to the Jacob Wetterling case. And they've all been amazing. But on today's episode, we're going to cover a case that hits close to home, as it's a case from New Jersey. We have heard the heartbreaking story of Jacob Wetterling, but today we're going to give a voice to seven-year-old Megan Kanka, whose mother did not know she was living next door to a monster. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. 
We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Before we get any further into the information regarding this case, we want to warn our audience that the topic we're covering today is a brutal one. And if you are sensitive to crimes against children, this episode may not be for you. With that being said, I choose to include every detail in this case because I did not want what was done to Megan to be forgotten. That in this controversial debate that has now begun surrounding the sex offender registry in this country, we remember that at the heart of the story, there's a little girl whose life was senselessly and violently stolen, and that it's not something that should be sugar-coated. With that being said, let's get into episode 27. The country and the world knows her as Megan Nicole Kanka, but to her family, she was Maggie. And during the late afternoon on a July day, Maggie was excited. It was a beautiful summer day, and this soon-to-be second grader was given permission to ride her bike around the loop that was Barbara Lee Drive in Hamilton Township, New Jersey. That was the only condition that Maureen Kanka gave Maggie as she went to lie down. Don't leave the loop. Maggie agreed and rode away with her eight-year-old friend from the block, Courtney. What we believe is that Megan was playing with Courtney originally earlier in the day, that the two had to go home for dinner, and that Megan was allowed back out by her mother to go find Courtney again. This was something that Maggie was allowed to do on most summer late afternoons as the neighborhood was full of children. Maureen knew exactly what her daughter was doing, as she had been doing it all summer. She was riding around with her friend, stopping at every dog she saw so that she could pet them through the fences. And sometimes, if Maureen was lucky, she would come home with a handful of flowers from only God knows where. Hopefully the park close by, and hopefully not from a neighbor's yard. But more than likely, it was from a neighbor's yard. Which is actually kind of funny. Yeah. That's funny. It's cute. (laughs) But this time, Maggie didn't come back with a fistful of flowers. Maureen asked her other two children, Jessica, age 11, and Jeremy, age 9, if they had seen their sister recently. When they said no, Maureen began to worry. Her and her husband Richard, who everyone knew as Richie, began searching the small neighborhood. They had quickly made flyers explaining what Megan looked like and what she was wearing, and they visited every spot that she might be. However, Maggie was nowhere to be seen. Richie and Maureen began going house to house, asking everyone if they had seen their daughter. And when they apologized to the frantic parents, they were told to yell if they saw her. This is when Maureen decided to make that parents' worst nightmare phone call to police. Her daughter was missing. Maureen recounted to police that at approximately 6.30 p.m. on July 29, 1994, she allowed Maggie to visit a friend and ride her bike around the neighborhood. It was now 8.30 p.m., and she was nowhere to be found. She told them that her and her husband had went door-to-door looking for Megan, and their neighbors had all said that they had seen Meg. If they had seen Megan, it was a lot earlier in the afternoon. Maureen was reassured that the police would be arriving shortly to take down her statement and to assist her in the search. Officer Paul Seitz and Mike Smith arrived at the Kanka home at 8.48 p.m. They listened to the story of Maureen and Richie and asked for a recent photograph of their daughter. They were looking down at a school photograph of an adorable little girl with dirty blonde hair held up in a half-up, half-down ponytail as she smiled into the camera. Her smile showing her adult teeth slowly and awkwardly growing in like we all remember them doing, and a background that looked as sunny and clear as the day that she went missing. But then Maureen remembered something. She had a pair of shorts that were identical to the shorts that she had seen on Megan that day, and she wanted them to have those as well. The officers kindly took the shorts from the hysterical mother and the officers explained that the first thing that they do in this case is search the property and the house of the family. The Kankas agreed to the search and helped the officers along the way. They did not find Megan. This is when the officers began to officially question the neighbors. 
The general consensus was that Megan was seen riding her bike with her friend around the neighborhood earlier that afternoon. The latest the girl was seen was at 6.45. Knowing that they needed to act fast, the police in Hamilton Township obtained consent to search all neighborhood homes around 10 p.m. All houses within the neighborhood allowed law enforcement to complete the searches as various members of the neighborhood got together to begin searching for Megan. Well, that's really nice that they were able to, you know, give consent and to let them search the neighborhood. Yeah, all neighbors completely gave 100% consent for the police to to go through, search their houses, and then most of them were helping in the the actual active search. search. Which Mm -hmm. is, that's fantastic. Now, that's a community. That's a community that comes together. It's very nice. None of the officers found Megan or anything suspicious except for Officer Nelson, as he was referred to in the court transcripts. One of the homes that Nelson was sent to was the house diagonally across from the Kanka family. When Nelson approached 27 Barbara Lee Drive, he was greeted at the door by the owner of the house, Joseph Cefeli. Nelson asked the man who owned the house, which was Cefeli, if he had permission to search the premises, and Cefeli gave consent. He also explained that he lived with his mother and two roommates named Brian Jenin and Jesse Temendequez. Cefeli explained that he and Brian had been running errands when the little girl went missing, but his other roommate that was home, Temendequez, had answered every question that police had asked so far. In fact, Jesse Temendequez told police that he saw Megan riding her bike between 5.30 and 6 p.m. He also recalled that earlier in the afternoon, she was asking him about his boat, which the roommates had just recently purchased that day. Nelson did find it interesting that three adult males lived in the same house. However, he was more interested in the fact that as he was searching the house, he noticed a heavy brown blanket being washed on a heavy cycle in the washing machine. The detectives working the case, O'Dwyer and Kiefer, believed that this deserved a second look, and at 12.30 a.m., with the help of their detective sergeant, they obtained a signed consent form from Cefeli again to search the house for a second time, this allowing them to go through the belongings of the house and not just look around. While this search was occurring, the residents of the house were being questioned individually. Underneath the bed of Cefeli, the detectives found four pairs of female underwear. One of the pairs had teddy bear pattern on them. Following this discovery, Cefeli was read his rights, but he waived them. He was adamant that he was not involved in the disappearance of Megan Kanka, and that the underwear that was found under his bed were that of his ex-girlfriends. The detective soon realized that Cefeli was telling the truth. The underwear was adult-sized. The alibi that Cefeli and Brian Jenin provided also checked out. Their statements were verified by receipts that the two had kept. Cefeli and Jenin were not home at the time of the disappearance. Okay, this is a very serious case. I just have to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Why in the world would an adult female wear teddy bear underwear? Well, that's something that we're going to get into a little okay, bit later. Okay, I'm just saying, that's crazy. That's yeah. weird, man. It's very strange, and we'll get... I'm all for, like, pajamas and, like, shit like yes. that, but, like, why the fuck are you wearing, pata- uh, you know, teddy bear underwear for? Yeah, it's... Come we'll on, get you're into an adult. it. All right. Yeah. I think the point is to not look like an adult, if you know what I mean. True. Next, the police brought in Jesse Temendequez, because nothing unusual was found in his room. He was not suspected of any wrongdoing, and it was for this reason that police did not read him his rights. Temendequez stated that he went out earlier in the day with his two roommates and purchased a boat. After the purchase, he spent a majority of the afternoon washing it in the driveway of the house. He said that he did speak to Megan, whom he referred to as the neighborhood girl. He also said that Courtney was with her at the time that she approached him. And while he was watching his boat at around 5 to 5.30, the two girls were asking him questions about his boat. And he also then confirmed that his roommates were not home until 7 p.m. that night. The officer that interviewed Temendequez, Officer O'Dwyer, testified during trial that as the man was being questioned, he was shaky and sweating very heavily. When O'Dwyer's partner then went to sit down next to him, Kiefer, he crossed his arms and legs away from the detective. 
and due to the fact that Temendekwes was alone during the disappearance, was extremely nervous, and the fact that he admitted to seeing Megan multiple times throughout the day, the detectives decided that they should bring Temendekwes in for further questioning down at headquarters. They asked him if he would come willingly. He said he would, but he requested that he drive himself to the police station. Temendekwes signed a waiver regarding his Miranda rights. When he and the detectives arrived at headquarters at 2.50 a.m., at this point, Megan had been missing for almost seven hours. Temendekwes told police over and over again that he did not want a lawyer and only wanted to help the investigation. The detectives asked Temendekwes to write down a statement regarding his whereabouts for the entire day. However, the statement that he gave conflicted with the other two statements that he had given. He had told the Kankas that he had seen her around 2.30 while he was washing his boat, and then again at 5.30. He told the police first that he had only seen her in the late afternoon, and then later told another officer that he had only seen the little girl one time. It seemed that Temendekwes was looking more and more suspicious as time went on. By the time the statement was written, checked, and signed, it was 4 a.m. But before he left, the detectives asked him and Dequez if they could get permission to search his vehicle. And I bet at this point, he was wishing that he didn't ask to drive himself to the police station. But Tim and Dequez consented. The vehicle was searched in the presence of Tim and Dequez, making for a very tense search. In the car, a brown toy chest and pieces of black felt were found in the back of the pickup truck. As the detectives were searching for Leighton Prince, Tim and Dequez suddenly told them that he had recently cut his hand in the truck on the curtain rod present in front of the glass that separates the passenger from the cab portion of the truck. But when detectives looked, they could not see any blood anywhere. But there was an injury to the palm of the man's hand. And to me, this seems like he was just trying to make an excuse so that if the detectives found blood in his truck, that that's what. I agree. Once the search was completed, Tim and Dequez left the station after he promised the detectives that he would return for questioning the next day. But the Hamilton Township Police did not want to wait until the next day to find out what was happening or where Megan Kanka was. They knew that Jesse Tim and Dequez was involved with the disappearance of this little girl and they were holding out hope that they could get to her in time. So as Detectives O'Dwyer and Kiefer were leaving, they called up Detective Martin Ingebrandt, who was to be brought in on the case at 5.30 a.m. And by 7 a.m., Ingebrandt was on his way to 27 Barbara Lee Drive to take a look at the boat that the three roommates had just bought. When he arrived at the house, he asked Caffelli if he had permission to search the boat, and Caffelli signed all consent forms and another search began. Detective Ingebrandt is going to state that when he began searching the boat, there was no garbage out on the curb. This is important. So there was no garbage cans out on the curb. While the detective was searching the boat, he noticed a man walking a dog, a puppy, down the street. At the time, the detective did not know it yet, but that man was Jesse Temendekwes. The detective was getting very deep into the search of the boat, completing luminol tests and searching every inch, as well as doing fingerprinting. He got lost in the process, and by the time that Ingebrandt was finished, it was almost 8.30 a.m., and when he stood up in the boat to stretch himself out, frustrated that he hadn't found anything, he noticed something very interesting. There were now three large garbage bags outside on the curb. So for the fourth time, Caffelli was asked permission for a search. But this time, it was for those garbage bags. The detectives brought the contents of the cans back to the station for analysis. And it was 9 a.m. at this point. Megan had been missing for 13 hours. The bags were emptied out in the lab of the police station on three separate tables, one for each bag. Within the garbage, the team found a rope with some knots tied in it, a substance that appeared to be dried blood, 
and the waistband of a small pair of pants appearing to be for a child. Very similar to the waistband of the shorts that Megan Kanka's mother provided to police. And a piece of material that matched the waistband that was earlier found. Detective Ingebrandt is going to return to the house of the Kankas, holding two evidence bags in his shaking hands as he rang the doorbell. As he waited for the Kankas to come to the door, he couldn't help but turn around and take a look at the house across the way, and he wondered just what really happened over there. When the Kankas let him in, he sat down with them on their living room couch. He informed Richard and Maureen about the searches and the questioning of the neighbors. He ended with the fact that a child's clothing was found in the trash cans out in front of the house and he held out the evidence bags and asked the family if they recognized the clothing that was found. The Kangas, confused, sobbing, and scared, confirmed that the clothing was Megan's. The family then went to the police station to make an official statement confirming that the clothes were in fact those of their seven-year-old daughter. Could you imagine being those parents? No, I couldn't. And honestly, I... I could. I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of that police of that detective. Yeah, he, I mean, he. I think he knew. He was very upset. Yeah, I mean, he knew at the moment that they found that. I also want to make the comment that at this point, it does seem like there are a lot of police officers, a lot of detectives involved in this case, but the communication is like spot on with them all. So when someone comes in for the morning shift, they see they know everything about the case. They're briefed on it, but. There has been immediate action and um, very professional action taken by the police officers of Hamilton Township. Yeah, very very well done. Yeah. So we're going to take a break from the episode to talk to you about our new sponsor, Care.com. Care.com is the easy and reliable way to find care for everyone in the family, when and where you need it. With access to 8.6 million caregivers across 16 countries, Care.com is the world's largest digital marketplace for care. So you're sure to find the local caregivers you need, including nannies, sitters, housekeepers, senior care, dog walkers, and more. Full-time, part-time, anytime. Care.com can even help with the household payroll and nanny taxes. Getting started is easy. Just sign up for free as a basic member to post jobs and view in-depth caregiver profiles that include work experience, certifications, and special skills. Plus, access background checks, reviews, read articles, and get tips from parents and caregivers on all things care-related. Although Care.com has many amazing services, we are going to talk to you about childcare today. Family care needs can be unpredictable. Sick kids, picking up a parent after an operation, emergency visits to the vet, these are all things that happen to families all the time. You need an extra set of hands on demand, often when you least expect it. Care.com is the world's largest digital marketplace for finding and managing family care. At Care.com, you can find care for everyone in the family. Whether you need child care while you're at work, or you, want, or you want to line up a date night sitter. Care.com is there for you. At Care.com, you can find, book, and pay for care all in one place. The Care.com premium membership can provide you with all the sitters you need within your zip code and beyond if needed. It also provides you with background checks, qualifications, and certifications you need when searching for a potential caregiver. I myself worked for Care.com when I was in high school and college. I loved the process. I had to submit a background check and a list of references. Once I was approved, I was contacted by families who either needed a sitter for one night, needed someone to drive their children to and from school for a few months because of work schedule changes, and for one year I worked as a nanny for a family. What I really loved about it was that the parents or guardians could post any type of job they wanted whether it was for a few hours a week, full-time work, or just an hour a week. It allowed the family to truly seek the caregiver that was perfect for them and allowed the caregiver to really choose the family and the hours that worked for them. It was a wonderful experience and I recommend it for everyone. Care.com is offering an amazing deal to true crime couple listeners. 
To save 30% off of Care.com premium membership, visit Care.com TCC. I had a premium membership myself and I loved it. You should get one too. Again, the deal is 30% off of a Care.com premium membership by visiting Care.com slash TCC. Okay, let's get back to our episode. Jesse Temendekwes was quickly brought into the station for questioning. He was read his Miranda rights, but he waived them again. The two detectives that were responsible for questioning him asked him to first rewrite his whereabouts for the day in question. They did not give him any directions or anything specifically to focus on. When he was done writing the statement, the detectives read it together. They weren't shocked that this statement was completely different from the one that he had given the day before. But one of the detectives noticed something very interesting. He focused on the time period between 6 and 6.30 quite frequently throughout the statement. In fact, he mentioned it four times. This is interesting because we know that Megan Kanka left her house at 6.30 p.m. when her mother gave her permission to go back outside, presumably after dinner. The two detectives knew that while they were questioning him that they had to press this issue. What had happened at 6.30 p.m.? The detectives chose to go in aggressively with questioning. They showed Timendekwes a picture of the clothing that was found in the garbage bags. But Timendekwes did not let that phase him. He stated that those were rags from his job and he, again, had nothing to do with the disappearance. But the detectives kept questioning him. In fact, they did so until around 6.30 p.m. During this interview, Timendekwes was given two 25-minute breaks. However, he was not allowed to leave the conference room that he was being held in. During this time, he never asked for a lawyer, but he did at 6.20 ask to speak to one of his roommates, Brian Jennon. Brian Jennon walked into the interview room, accompanied by Detective Kiefer from the initial search. The two looked silently at each other. It was Jennon that spoke first. He leaned down across the table and said to Tim and Dequez, They got you, they got you, they got you. You're going to need a friend on the outside. I'll be that friend. Tim and Dequez put his head down in response. He looked up at the detective and said, She's in Mercer County Park. After the shock wore off, he added that she was dead and that he had put a bag over her head. The detectives asked if he would show them exactly where he placed Megan's body, and he agreed. It is important to note that during the trial, Detective Kiefer denied telling Brian Jennon what to say or that he should convince Tim and Dequez to confess. When Tim and Dequez and detectives drove out to the Mercer County Park, he led them directly to Megan. She was lying in the tall weeds, completely concealed from view. Like he told detectives, a plastic bag was over her head. On the drive back to headquarters, the detectives asked him and Dequez what had happened. It was 7.30 p.m. at this point, just shy of 24-hour mark on Megan's reported disappearance. From the back seat of the police cruiser, a handcuffed Tim and Dequez finally told what he said was the true story. And this is what he told police. When Tim and Dequez saw Megan out riding her bike, she was most likely on the way back to her friend's house after they had both had dinner. He asked her if she wanted to see his new puppy inside the house. Taking advantage of the fact that his roommates weren't home, Tim and Dequez lured Megan into his house. He stated that when he got Megan into the house, he convinced her to go into his bedroom, where he, in his own words, said that he began to touch her. That is when the seven-year-old girl screamed and tried to get away. Afraid that she would tell her parents or the police, Tim and Dequez said that he tried to grab her and in doing so ripped her shorts. Tim and Dequez then grabbed a belt. Running after the little girl, he, from behind her, got the belt around her neck and carried her back into the bedroom. 
Tim and Dequist said that it was during this time that Megan fell and began to bleed from her head. Once he got her back into his room, he placed a bag over her head to prevent blood from getting on the carpet. He then put a second bag over the first. That is when he heard the front door of the house open and his roommates arrive back at the house. Thinking Megan was dead, Tim and Dequez placed her body into a large toy box that he had converted into a toolbox, which is disgusting. Crazy. When Tim and Dequez was placing the box into the back of his pickup truck, he heard a cough. Tim and Dequez planned on killing Megan when he got to the site where he planned on dumping her body. At first, he was going to dump her body by a grouping of power lines, but he had saw a police car in the area, so he chose to go to Mercer County Park. Tim and Dequez realized as he pulled Megan's body out of the box that, in fact, she was dead. He told police that while he was moving the body out of the box, he had placed her, his fingers in her vagina and, in his words, played around a little bit and then dumped her body in the weeds. After Tim and Dequez left the park, he went to the Wawa, which is a convenience store, and purchased cigarettes and paper and then drove home. Once he got home, he then tore up the shorts and threw them in the garbage and went outside to get air to have went outside to get air and have a cigarette. <sighs> Hold on. Wait. When he was in the front yard, he ran into the Kankas. Maureen Kanka asked him if he had seen her daughter, if he had seen her daughter, and he told her that he had seen her by the neighborhood by the neighbor's driveway. A foot I'm like getting caught up in my words. By the neighbor's driveway a few hours before. He then agreed to help her hand out a stack of freshly printed flyers that she was holding in her arms. That's unbelievable. I mean, how do you live with yourself? Like, I, I understand, like, you have... Well, I actually I don't understand. But, I, I, like, you have issues. I, okay, fine. But how does someone function? How? You just killed a child. Yeah. did so much fucked up shit. Well... And now you're standing in front of the mother. Like, and then you want to help. Like, it's just so sick. You know? Yeah, but most times we do see interjection of the perpetrator in searches and True, the we case. do. Yeah. So. But the detectives in the car didn't say a word, and they didn't interject. When they got to the station, they told Tim and Dequez to write down everything that he had just told them. The detectives were suspicious about this story. It was the fourth story that they had heard from their suspect, all of them being different. As Tim and Dequez is writing his statement, and Megan's body is being identified by her parents, the detectives are going to take a look into his past, and whether or not he has a criminal history. They find out that, in fact, he does. He has a very extensive criminal history. Tim and Dequez pleaded guilty to the attempted aggravated assault of a five-year-old girl in Piscataway Township which is about 35 miles north of Hamilton Township. He was given a suspended sentence, but after failing to go to counseling, he was sent in for nine months to the Middlesex Adult Correctional Facility. In 1981, he pleaded guilty in regards to the assault of a seven-year-old girl and was imprisoned at the Adult Diagnostic and Treatment Center in Avenel, New Jersey for six years. So two Two. Prior, Two prior to, this. to this. Tim and Dequez reportedly participated little in the treatment program that was offered at the center in Avenel. He was described by one of the therapists who treated him at the facility as a whiner who spent most of his time sleeping. Another therapist stated that she believed that Tim and Dequez would eventually commit another sex crime, although she did say that she didn't think he was capable of murder. But if he's capable still, why was he released? See, see, that's that. Ha- this has nothing to do with like how we view police and like whether or not they, as I always say, drop the ball. This has everything to do with how we evaluate offenders. Yeah, well, you know? it's definitely 
changes. This yeah. is what changes it. Because it's definitely not over yet. Oh, yeah. As soon as Tim and Deck was signed his statement, he was arrested. Officially, he was charged with knowing or purposeful murder of Megan Kanka by his own conduct, felony murder, first-degree kidnapping, first-degree aggravated assault, the aggravating factors in this case including the murder being committed to escape detection, apprehension, trial, punishment or confinement for the aggravated sexual assault, and kidnapping of the victim. And the murder was committed in the course of the commission of an aggravated sexual assault and kidnapping of the victim. He was going to be up for the death penalty. Good. As the legal battles begin, there was public outrage in Hamilton Township. As more came out about the residents of 27 Barbara Lee Drive, it was released that Temendekwes, Jenin, and Caffelli had all met each other as they were all in jail or at treatment centers because they were all convicted sex offenders. All three men. Oh my God. Tim and Dequez had met Jenin in jail while he was serving time for the sexual assault of an 11-year-old boy. Jenin had stated that in prison he had protected Tim and Dequez from other prisoners, and over time they developed an emotional and sexual relationship. The two men were then moved to a treatment center in Avenel where they met Caffelli, who when they were all released, suggested that they move into his house where his mother lived in Hamilton Township, across from the Kankas. The public was enraged at the fact that in their town, more specifically in their sleepy cul-de-sac, which lie half a mile away from the town elementary school, was a house of three pedophiles. This was actually even against proper protocol. When an offender leaves treatment, they are not supposed to have contact with those that they met in treatment because this can lead to reoffense, let alone live with two other past offenders. That's like a bomb. Ready to, <laughs> like, a ready to go off. Bomb. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't believe that. The two other men were cleared by police and did not end up testifying for or against Tim and Dequez in his trial. The trial of Jesse Tim and Dequez lasted only one month. A jury was impaneled from Hunterton County, and they heard the story that we have just presented to you. But the most important part of the trial was also the most emotional. It was when we were finally able to hear from Megan. Lies were told through the many stories of Jesse Temendekwes, and it is through her autopsy and the medical examiners that Megan would receive a voice. And her final words would destroy any hope that her murderer may have thought he had in his trial. From Megan's autopsy and an examination of Temendekwes, the truth about what had occurred on that summer day was revealed. By the end of the testimony from the medical examiner, there wasn't a dry eye in the jury box. In fact, an alternate juror was silently sobbing with her head in her hands as Temendekwes looked stoically on. The first man that was heard from was Dr. Haskell Askins, who performed an analysis on the marks that remained on Temendekwes's body. On his right hand was a bite mark that, when analyzed, was determined to be from that of the seven-year-old victim. Next, the jury heard from Rafet Ahmed, who was the Mercer County Medical Examiner. He stated that he found, among other things, pre-technical hemorrhaging in both eyes, a telltale sign of death by strangulation. He found a ligature mark on the neck that was consistent with the leather belt found in the defendant's room. The victim had bruising and contusions under her chin, consistent with an object or hand being placed on her neck. The victim received a blunt trauma to her eye, caused either by a fist or by striking the head against an object. There was also bruising on the back, arms, and legs, indicating that the victim had been grabbed and held on her back with something or someone on top of her. There were also abrasions that were caused by being rubbed against the carpet. Internally, the victim had bruising on her colon and right kidney, caused by separate blows and or someone's weight on top of her. There was a tear to the hymenal margin and penetration of the vagina caused by finger or penis. Additionally, there were two tears that covered the anus, indicating penetration by penis. Severe hemorrhaging was caused by three separate blows to the head with a blunt object. 
three separate blows. So that tells us that so much more took place than what he had told detectives in the car and in his written statement. So much more. Oh, yeah. Dr. Ahmed concluded that the cause of death was mechanical strangulation with a leather belt, constricting oxygen to the brain, causing brain death within three to four minutes. Three to four minutes. The plastic bags hastened, but were not the cause of death. So while she was being strangled, she had the bags over her head the whole time. That was a really... And, and most likely the bags over her head the entire time of her attacks. That's brutal. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so sad. Tim and Dequez's defense is going to focus on two factors. His childhood and mitigating factors. Tim and Dequez's childhood was described as extremely dysfunctional. His mother was promiscuous and an alcoholic who had 10 children by seven different men. Several of the children had been placed in foster care or adopted. Tim and Dequez's brother testified that he and Jesse had both been repeatedly molested by their father, Skip, and that they had both witnessed Skip rape a seven-year-old girl when Jesse was eight or nine. However, that wasn't verified by any additional um, witnesses. But it would lead you to believe that... It desensitized him, and also yeah. Yeah. people that are molested do tend to commit the same crime. Yep. The psychologist also testified, but there's no excuse. There is no excuse. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I'm not. I know. I'm just letting everyone know that that is yeah. not an excuse. No. But I'm just saying it would lead one to believe yes. that. Yes, to associate that with that. Yeah. Correct. The psychologist also testified that on the basis of trial testimony, that Tim and Dequez was under extreme emotional disturbance when he killed Megan and that he was unraveling psychologically and that his ability to understand the nature of his actions was very much impaired. Finally, he asserted that the defendant's intent to commit sexual assault did not mean that he intended to murder Megan. He testified that the defendant killed Megan as a reflexive response to the panic he felt when she attempted to flee, blaming the victim. Thus, the murder, according to the psychologist, was not premeditated. The jury concluded that the aggravating factors outweighed the mitigating factors. So. Go screw yourself. By virtue of the verdict, the court sentenced the defendant to death. On July 30th, 1997, the defendant was sentenced on the non-capital counts of indictment. Felony murder convictions, counts two and four, were merged into murder, count one. He was sentenced to life imprisonment on that count in the event that his death sentence was vacated. Counts five through eight of the aggravated sexual assault convictions were merged with the kidnapping conviction count three, because it was more time. Defendant was sentenced to life imprisonment on the kidnapping charge with 25 years parole ineligibility to run consecutively to count one. Tim and Dequez was also required to pay a violent crimes compensation board penalty fee of $100. So he basically has three life sentences and was sentenced to death. And of course, Tim and Dequez is going to file for a notice of appeal. His appeal is going to run on the fact that um, his lawyers were incompetent. Maureen and Richard Kanka began a campaign for laws requiring the notification of the presence of sex offenders in communities. Megan's law gained both state and national acceptance. The Kankas worked hand-in-hand with the Wetterlings, who lost their son Jacob, to similar circumstances around the same time period. It was the belief of the families that communities should be made aware when sex offenders move into their neighborhoods so they can properly protect their children. In an effort by the Clinton administration in 1996 to better police the United States, President Clinton signed a bill encouraging states to adopt such notification legislation. This law is known officially as the Amendment to the Violent Crimes Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. Its purpose is to require the release of relevant information to protect the public from sexually violent offenders. Originally, the Jacob Wetterling Act made this a requirement for states to alert communities. However, the federal law, known as Megan's Law, required all sex offenders to register federally and also includes community notification. So this encompasses it all. Yes, and makes them register. Which should have been like that from the start. Yeah. But I'm glad it's done. It is the registry that has gained much controversy in recent years, 
as the requirements of the registry include nonviolent acts. In the sex registry, of course, there's tears. But I do remember that this happened in 1994, when Megan was seven, I was five. And this Hamilton Township is 40 miles from where I grew up. Right, right. So my parents remember this case very well, and I talked to them about this. My mom says she remembers when that law was signed the next day, the first thing she did was look in our neighborhood. And that it really changed everything, that even when you think you're safe, right, on your block, in your house, that that you're truly not, and it's it makes it harder to feel like you can protect your children Yeah. when knowing something like this took place. But either way, agree or not about the registry, Megan's parents fought tremendously hard for their daughter to never be forgotten, and her death not to be in vain. However, there's an update to this story. After the sentencing of Tim and Dequez in 1997, Ten years after, in fact, New Jersey became the first state in more than three decades at the time, New York will soon follow, to abolish the death penalty after a commission ruled that the punishment is inconsistent with the evolving standards of decency. The governor at the time, John Corzine, stated, Society is not forgiving criminals, but the law is necessary because government cannot provide a foolproof, a foolproof death penalty that precludes the possibility of executing the innocent. Society must ask, he continued, is it not morally superior to imprison 100 people for life than it is to execute all 100 when it's probable we execute the innocent? The state assembly approved the measure by a vote of 44 to 36 after the Senate okayed it on a vote of 21 to 16. Now, looking at that numbers, you can see that this was a very highly controversial because many did not want to see Tim and Dequez not face the death penalty for what he did. However, it's also not likely, as he was seventh on that list of eight men who were currently on death row. So at the time that New Jersey took the death penalty off of the table, there was only eight men on death row. And prior to that, a man had not been executed in the state of New Jersey since 1963. Wow. Interesting. So it didn't seem like he wasn't going to be. Right. There wasn't, it wasn't going to happen anytime soon, but, well, definitely not in his lifetime. But that was a very controversial when New Jersey decided to do that. And the main person that they spoke about when that happened was Jesse Timendequez because he was not remorseful for what he did. He never showed any signs of remorse. He never apologized to the Kanka family. Now we have a national law because of what he did. And he so violently raped and beat a seven-year-old girl whom he lured into his house because he had a puppy. Right. (laughs) I remember when that happened that people were being interviewed because now at this time in 2007, I'm a junior in high school, and... The news was full of people being interviewed saying that they would want to kill him themselves. Like that, yeah. it struck a chord. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In Especially, the I mean, it's getting national attention. A law was put in place over this. And Correct. It's probably one of the most emotional videos that I saw was well, there's two of them involving this case, but it's like the revisiting of the Kenka family 20 years after. And. The family is sitting in their living room, which hasn't changed since 1994. They seem basically emotionally arrested in the time of when their daughter was taken from them. And it's so sad. But then you also see them when Bill Clinton is signing the law. And he, like, stops and talks to them. And you could see how sad they are. It's just so sad. It's very emotional. Um, It definitely, like, it struck a chord with me. I know it did for you as well. Yeah. I think that... Without getting into the politics of it, because I really don't like to no, talk about politics. No, and we definitely don't want to get into um, whether we support or don't support I, the death penalty. I, I'm not going to talk about whether I support it or not. I, I Just morally, though, morally, though, I think that if you are going to commit an act of violence... Against a child. Against a child, and the child turns up dead, even if it... Or if she didn't, you're still committing an, a vile act. And I think that... If you do such a thing that like that and have no remorse, 
Yeah. And have been a repeat offender. And a repeat offender. This is not the first time. My personal belief is that, you know... How could you ever be a contributing member of society how, again? How you know? What do well, you, this this case is is purely unique in the fact that we know that he is one hundred and ten percent guilty. Right. I feel like so they, that's they a were trying different. to play this this card where oh well you know what if this person is innocent and they're putting him on death row? It's not like right. that. It's this different is, in the case of Jesse Temendekwes. One hundred absolutely. This guy was found guilty. So. Well, the Kenka family is truly one of the strongest families that I've ever researched. And they never gave up on, on not only seeking justice for what had happened to their daughter, but to ensure that if they could, they would help to prevent it from ever happening again. The Kankas remain in their family home on Barbara Lee Drive. Richard Kanka is an at-large representative of the Hamilton Township Board of Education, continuing to ensure the safety and preservation of innocence for the children of the community. Megan, Maggie Nicole Kanka, will always be remembered. I know that I think of her every time I look at those faces, memorize the cars that they drive, and try to figure out just how far away they are from our school. Megan may not have gotten to grow up and experience all that life has to offer, but it is because of her legacy that other children may have that opportunity. Yeah. Well said. Yes. I think that was definitely an emotional episode, and I'm glad that, you know, Megan's voice is also able to be heard and her story is told. And it's it's a sad one, but it definitely changed the way that we protect our children today. Which is needed, yeah. unfortunately, in the world we live in. Correct. Um all right, guys, um, we want to thank you for joining us for episode 27. We really hope that you enjoyed it. Again, please follow us on all social media platforms at True Crime Couple. And again, if you're interested in helping contribute to our Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Couple. All right, I will see you soon. We love you. Bye, Bye. guys.